Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. You have what is called the Belt and Road Initiative, or One Belt, One Road, Idai Ilu. And when you look at the trillion-dollar dimensions of what China plans by this, shall I say, pan-national, pan-regional Eurasian construct, this is big stuff. It is huge. Some say it's a pompous projection of power, and it won't work. Others say, not so fast. This is a signature feature of President Xi Jinping's China First policies. Even more important is to promote a better understanding among different countries, different cultures. That will be the real foundation for any international cooperation, including the Belt and Road Initiative. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia research specialists at the University of Melbourne. On Ear to Asia, we talk with Asia experts to unravel the issues behind the news headlines in a region that is rapidly changing the world. In this episode, we look at China's Belt and Road Initiative, an economic and strategic policy of epic proportions. First proposed in 2013, its aim is to connect Asia, Europe and Africa through massive investments in infrastructure and trade routes. Originally called One Belt and One Road, the official English name was changed in part to reflect the breadth of Beijing's ambitions. Far from a single corridor of development, it involves a series of routes over land, as well as a so-called Maritime Silk Road. The initiative spans 64 countries and counting, with railways, ports, gas pipelines, power plants and, of course, roads being planned and built in the pursuit of a Chinese model of globalisation. The cost will be enormous, and while hundreds of billions of US dollars have already been committed, the final bill will likely exceed $5 trillion. It's the brainchild of China's President Xi Jinping, who says China hopes to create a big family of harmonious coexistence. But the project raises a number of questions, and not just from those on the outside looking in. How realistic is a project of this scale? Who will it ultimately benefit? And what are its real objectives? To help us answer these questions, I'm joined by Asia Institute China and Southeast Asia watcher Dr. Salki Tok and by China and South Asia specialist Dr. Pradeep Tanija from the School of Social and Political Sciences. Gentlemen, welcome. Hello. Hello. I've just given a very broad outline of the Belt and Road Initiative, a lot of money being spent on a lot of projects in a lot of countries, but can we be more specific? Do we have a clear idea of how much is being committed, what it's being committed to, and what the links are? Sarkit? Well, I think when we talk about this Belt Road Initiative, there's still a lot to be seen and a lot to be accounted for. It started off with a bang, but in effect, policy-wise and finance commitment-wise, there's a lot left to imagination because it's a very hastily patched up package of commitments and investments. And uh, eventually, what the Chinese are really doing is actually to put in six different economic corridors that China has been engaging in. 
and uh, call it the Belt and Road. Use it as a kind of like foundation to Belt and Road. And subsequently, you see lots of promises about investments into various parts of the world and bring in, as you said, the 64 different countries and counting. And I think experts are still puzzled by exactly how much is committed, how much effort not just the money, but how much effort is committed to the Belt Road Initiative at the moment. Pradeep, does it seem a little disjointed? Well, to put it in perspective, the One Belt, One Road or the Belt and Road Initiative has got two separate dimensions. One is paradoxically the land corridor and the sea road, the maritime road. So hence it's in a one belt and one road. But there is no blueprint. The One Belt, One Road initiative is a little bit like China's economic reforms you know, in, back in the late 1970s. There was no blueprint, and it was a question of trial and error. That uh, There's a grand program for modernization, as it was called then. This is now a grand program of One Belt, One Road. There's a lot of money available, but at the same time, it's not entirely clear what the money is for. There's a broad sort of outline, but there is no detail. And that, in fact, has been part of the problem because many of the countries who would like to participate in the Belt and Road Initiative are not entirely clear what the rules are and what the detail of the scheme is because the detail is only with the people in Beijing. In other words, only the Chinese Communist Party leadership knows what the detail is and they, I think, make it up as they go. But is that actually quite deliberate? I mean, it's called an initiative. That actually allows a lot of flexibility with A, definition, and B, how you judge success. Indeed. I mean, the word initiative is only in English. And remember that, as you said earlier in your introduction, the name has been changed from One Belt, One Road to the Belt and Road Initiative. In Chinese, the name hasn't changed. In Chinese, the name is still One Belt, One Road. But in English, the name was changed in 2015 to Belt and Road Initiative, partly, I think, because there were criticisms, there were objections from other powers around the world that there is no one belt and one road, only one way of doing things. There are multiple ways of doing things. And as far as the ancient Silk Road is concerned, that too was not one road and one belt. That too were multiple roads. And there were multiple stakeholders in multiple countries who were involved in the ancient Silk Road. So there was a lot of criticism. I think the Chinese government kind of responded to that criticism. And particularly for the foreign audiences, they have standardized the phrase. They say it's now Belt and Road Initiative. In fact, if you look at the directive issued by the NDRC, the National Reform and Development Commission in China, it was very clear to all Chinese media outlets, all Chinese academic institutions, that from here on, you will only refer to it as Belt and Road Initiative. So initiative does allow for more room to maneuver, to change when a change is needed. When there is a negative sort of perception outside China, then the initiative's dimensions can be changed. Does it matter, though, if it's vague? I mean, if you look at the sheer scale of these ambitions, they're huge. It would be beyond the ability of anyone to sit down and say, right, this is exactly what a project of this scale will look like. Salkeet, does it matter that we don't really know the details, that as Pradeep says, they appear to be making it up as they're going along? My answer to that is actually yes and no. 
Yes, in the sense that it does matter because a lot of participating countries, especially those that were wary of China's rise in global politics, needs to be convinced that there is something at stake for them in that initiative, and China was not trying to gain strategic advantage in,、uh, in comparison to the others. But no, in the sense that it is a kind of commitment that China is putting itself out. And you already see that in some instances. I'm not saying in all instances, but in some of them, China has been bringing benefits to development at places that were largely ignored by the developed world for the longest time. I don't want to step into、uh, Pradeep's field here, but in Pakistan, you see a lot of development in the western side of Pakistan, where you know it has been largely ignored by the United States and European Union, and Africa, for example. So, you know how benign the effects remains to be seen. I think we are looking at、uh, a very open question about how this BRI is going to change the landscape of the region. Pretty, I presume you you agree with Salkeet about the point that yes, it does matter because it puts others off or makes it more difficult for others to participate. Well, I mean, participation in the Belt and Road Initiative is subject to approval by the Chinese government. In other words, if the Chinese government wants you to participate, then you can participate. The reality so far in Pakistan, for example, in fact, the flagship project. Of the Belt and Road Initiative is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or CPEC.、Uh, CPEC was initiated, in fact, slightly before Xi Jinping announced the the One Belt One Road or the Belt and Road Initiative. But CPEC has become, you know, really the flagship of the scheme because there are more projects happening in Pakistan than there are in any other country as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. But at the same time, in Pakistan also, there is criticism from Pakistan companies, particularly large Pakistani companies, that they are not Able to participate in the Belt and Road Initiative because most of the companies which are involved in building, whether it's power stations or highways or roads or railways, are Chinese companies, and therefore Pakistani companies are saying that you know we are not really beneficiaries of this. Maybe the country will benefit from the infrastructure that's being built, but Pakistani companies and Pakistani people immediately don't see the benefits. Of the China-Pakistan economic corridor, and indeed, Islamabad just recently removed a dam project, didn't they, from、exactly. the corridor? In fact, we're seeing that in a number of countries there is a bit of a backtracking in many of the projects. We saw that earlier in in Myanmar, where the Myitsone, you know, dam project was、uh, suspended by the current government. But also in Pakistan, we have seen a couple of projects being put on hold, and some of these projects have been put on hold by the Pakistani government. But others, in fact, have been put on hold by the Chinese government, because the rate of return on many of these investments is entirely unclear. In other words, many of the projects in the Belt and Road Initiative don't seem to make any economic sense. So even though many business executives around the world are very keen to be able to participate. In the Belt and Road Initiative, but the reality is that the economic logic of the Belt and Road is not entirely clear. If you look at the projects which are part of the BRI or CPAC in Pakistan, it's very difficult to see where the return on this investment is going to come from. And in fact, in China now, many Chinese economists are also beginning to ask these questions. I mean, when, if at all, there is going to be a return on this investment? Can I just come in a little bit on that on two points? In all the eight programs from the 1950s, 60s onwards, except for Marshall Plan, most of them, especially those that were championed by Japan, actually requires the host country to use Japanese companies for that. That has been kind of a practice for a lot of eight programs 
since the Cold War times. And China is probably just trying to follow through that plan. I'm not trying to say that China is right or wrong in any way, but it seems that it's one thing to say that China is using Chinese company, another thing to say that China is just following what predecessors have been using. That's one thing. And the uh, the rate of return of investments that Pradeep was talking about is also something of a Chinese characteristics. I'm not a big fan of Chinese characteristics, but China's development has been something of a haphazard in nature. If you look at how China has developed itself since 1978, they didn't really have a clear plan of how they want to go. It's very much like they're filling the stones as they cross the river. So at this point of time, there might be some form of reflection of what kind of rate of investments and returns they're getting out of those investments. But at the same time, there was also this pressure to just invest and develop for the sake of investing and developing. So I think they are kind of at a crossroad at this moment and they're not too sure where they should be going ahead. Is it also being seen as key to try and maintaining momentum in China's own economic growth? It's part of outsourcing some of that. I see it that way, yes, because in various discussions I had with people in, in China is that you know they realised that China's development has reached a bottleneck and the next step is really to export capital and export those capacities to lesser developed countries where you know they can still continue to consume China's investments and consume China's capacities for their own infrastructure development. So that's kind of a way to give China's development a second boost and continue to lead uh, in the development field. And there is lots of questions about the financing, but just before I ask them, I wanted to ask Pradeep, is the aim, as you understand it, to bring in other countries from a funding point of view? You were saying it's up to China who gets involved, who's allowed to be involved, but particularly if they use the Asia Infrastructure Bank, will there be a role for equity from other countries? And if there is, who will control that? In fact, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is also a Chinese initiative, but completely different from the Belt and Road Initiative because Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is a multilateral organization. It has a board of directors. It's got a charter. It's got rules and regulations. And and other member countries, in fact, are active participants. So, for example, India is the second largest member of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, but India is not participating in the Belt and Road Initiative. If you look at the borrowing uh, from the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, India, in fact, according to a recent article in a Hong Kong newspaper, India, in fact, has borrowed nearly 25% of the fundings that have been lent by the AIIB. So AIIB is a completely different beast. It follows on the model of the World Bank and later on the Asian Development Bank, which, of course, was a Japanese initiative. But but, but never the twain shall meet. You'll never see money from AIIB into the Belt and Road? No, no, we could see AIIB money going into the Belt and Road Initiative project, but it'll have to be approved by a multilateral board of AIIB, whereas much of the funding for the Belt and Road Initiative is coming from the China Development Bank, the Export-Import Bank of China, the Exim Bank, and they are providing the bulk of the funding. So if you look at uh, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, as I said, it's the flagship project of the BRI Initiative. I would disagree with Sauki that uh, we can compare BRI to the Marshall Plan after the Second World War. Marshall Plan was about reconstruction of Europe. BRI is much more a strategic plan. For example, in Pakistan, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is not reconstructing Pakistan. It is, in fact, creating new infrastructure and new access to the Indian Ocean 
or China. And this is the point that has just been made in recent times by Australia's Federal Opposition Foreign Affairs spokesperson Penny Wong, who was given a speech, and she's called the initiative a game changer. And in her words, she says it's not a it's not a Marshall Plan, as you just said, Pradeep, premised on reconstruction. It's a strategic plan premised on long term economic and political alignment. I take the key words there being economic and political alignment. Do you think she's right, Pradeep? I think she's right, because essentially what China is trying to do is to use its economic power and its significant amounts of foreign currency reserves. There's more than $4 trillion worth of foreign currency reserves at the command of the Chinese government. And Chinese government, as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, is trying to maximize return on that investment. But as I said earlier, the problem is that many of these projects don't make economic sense. But at the same time, China is lending money. Much of the money involved in the Belt and Road Initiative is not aid. It's not grants by China to different countries. They're actually loans. We've seen, for example, recently in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is also one of the main beneficiaries of the Belt and Road Initiative. But I think beneficiaries is probably the wrong word because Sri Lanka has a huge debt problem. It now spends nearly 90% of its revenue on repaying debts. And in fact, one of its major ports has been handed to China because it couldn't service the debt that was used to construct it. And and that port uh, that you refer to, the Hambantota port, in fact, is a very good example because Hambantota port was built in an area where there was hardly any economic activity. It happened to be the constituency of the the former Sri Lankan president. And therefore, the Chinese government, working with an authoritarian leader, decided that if he wants a project there, we'll build the project there. The money, of course, is something we're going to lend to you, so we're not just giving it to you. You'll have to pay it back. And that white elephant airport and port that were built in Hamantota, there was no proper feasibility study, no attempt to even look at the economic viability of the project, because ultimately the money is owed to China by the Sri Lankan government. And now when they couldn't repay that money, China said, OK, we can actually convert debt into equity. And therefore, we will own this port for, I think, a 1990 lease. And at the same time, we will need more land because to make the port economically viable, we are going to create a special economic zone. We are going to attract Chinese companies and other foreign companies to come and invest in this area so that there is you know, trade and there is production of goods so that the port can become economically viable and we can then recover our money. And Salki, this is one of the concerns of the critics, isn't it? That this is what happens. Countries get themselves into difficulty with the loan and the asset changes hands. Absolutely. I actually, while Pradeep says that he disagrees with me, I actually agree with him in a lot of ways. But uh, I'm sure there has been a lot of white elephant that's being uh, developed at the moment. But just to go back to Penny Wong talking about this political and and, Mm. and, and economic alignment, philosophically or or theoretically, I kind of disagree with what she is saying. I mean, much as the BRI is realigning those countries politically and economically, Marshall Plan was doing the same thing in Europe during the height of Cold War. So we should not overlook the, the whole strategic and political impact of those plans initiated by United States and China, respectively, in different times. You know, we cannot deny that China is trying to expand its influence overseas. But I think it is far too early to make a judgment of how BRI is actually having an impact locally. We may have to look at it in 10 years, 20 years down the road. 
You're listening to Ear to Asia, a podcast from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Ali Moore. I'm joined by Asia Institute China and Southeast Asia watcher Dr. Saki Tok and by China and South Asia specialist Dr. Pradeep Tunisia. We're talking about who wins and who potentially loses as China rolls out its very ambitious Belt and Road Initiative across three continents and two oceans. Salki, let me ask you about uh, the reasons behind it, China's aims. I mean, ostensibly, it's trade, common development and prosperity. Salki, is it more political than prosperity? Is it more political than common economic development? I'll put it this way. We cannot dissociate all these things from each other. I think China has a huge political and strategic interest in BRI. Absolutely no question at all. My problem with China is that they are refusing to acknowledge that there is political and strategic impact. Can I come in there? I I would agree with Salkit on this because there is a distinction between China's rhetoric and reality. And in a way, that's a reflection of China's own political system. Because you don't have a democratic parliament, you don't have opposition parties, so the government is forced to explain you know, what it's doing. When democratic countries operate overseas, when they give foreign aid or when they have economic or strategic interests in foreign countries, they have to explain to their own people. They are answerable to their own people. They are answerable to the opposition parties. They are sometimes even answerable to the legal institutions in their home country. The problem is that in China, the government is not required to answer to anybody. And therefore, the rhetoric is that the Belt and Road Initiative is win-win. It will benefit everybody. China is only doing it because it's in the interest of China. It's also in the interest of the recipient countries. The fact is that the Belt and Road Initiative is at least as much, if not more, is strategic as it is economic. It's a strategic plan which employs economic power. And that is the reality. But China doesn't want to publicly acknowledge that there is any strategic dimension to it. And unless there is, I think, honesty and transparency in this, it will remain a very controversial initiative. And yet it is now enshrined in the Communist Party of China's constitution. What's the significance of that, both in terms of the commitment to it, but also the importance of success? I think the fact that the Belt and Road Initiative is now being mentioned in the Chinese Communist Party constitution, along with the Chinese President Xi Jinping's own theory, means that now it has a higher level of priority in government funding, in government initiatives, in China's foreign policy. I'll argue it's the highest, <clears throat> the highest in exactly. China right now. It's not just higher. Does that make it, Salki, too big to fail? I agree. Yes, I think it's too big to fail. The moment that Xi Jinping threw out this BRI, it was destined to succeed. And you can see afterwards, you know, how all the different ministries, the different levels of governments and institutions within the Chinese state, you know, putting their foot into this BRI and trying to make it come true. And given Xi Jinping's current political clout, even if there has been huge failures in any of the projects elsewhere, it has to laud it as a success in some way or the other because it's very much to boost his political popularity at home as much as to legitimise the Chinese Communist Party. And it very much plays into his narrative of reviving the Chinese nation. Absolutely. I think that is something his political popularity is riding on at the moment and they just have to make sure that everything works out like clockwork. It may be too big to fail, 
because it now has essentially a close association with the most powerful leader of the Chinese Communist Party by many accounts since Chairman Mao. But at the same time, I think there is also a risk that when a project or an initiative like the BRI is so closely associated with the leader, there is risk to the leader's own credibility. Given the magnitude of this project, China has never attempted anything like this before. China's economic reforms, as we said at the beginning, were a case of you know, trial and error. As Deng Xiaoping famously said, it's uh, really that we you know, feel for the stones as we cross the river. In other words, we trial things. If they don't work, we try something else. But with this, you don't really have that option because there is no blueprint. But at the same time, the success of the BRI depends not on the Chinese government alone. It depends on other countries. So Chinese companies, Chinese government is going to build infrastructure, whether it's ports and power stations and airports in other countries. And some of these countries are fledgling democracies where you do have elections, where you do have militaries, which play a very important part. So, for example, in Pakistan, which is a very precarious, fragile democracy, but in Pakistan, the Chinese government, for example, according to some Pakistani government sources, has been pushing for the military in Pakistan to play a bigger role in the implementation of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor project. But the Democrats in Pakistan, the ordinary people in Pakistan, feel that that's not very desirable because it may be more efficient from the Chinese point of view, but it'll be very undemocratic if the military was taking lead. And is this one of the issues? I mean, if you look at how India regards BRI, if you look at how the US regards BRI, even Australia's concerns with BRI, all of that then feeds into those who are more interlinked with the project now to create a non-unanimous vote of uh, of support? Well, many, many of the powers in the so-called Indo-Pacific region, as it's come to be described now, including the United States, Japan, Australia and India, are either lukewarm on this or opposed to the Belt and Road Initiative. India particularly has been one of the key opponents of the Belt and Road Initiative, partly because the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor transits through territory in Jammu and Kashmir, which is claimed by India. And India says that we had no discussion with China. It's a disputed territory. And the general understanding has been between China and India that we'll not do anything in disputed territories. We leave it to the countries involved to solve their territorial disputes. But by making Jammu and Kashmir as one of the key transit points of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, India believes that China is interfering in a territorial dispute between Pakistan and India. So that's India's main concern. India says it's a question of our sovereignty. It is our sovereign territory, and China is doing things without our permission, and therefore that's interfering. But I think there is also normative objections to it, because the Belt and Road Initiative reflects China's own way of doing things. And these ways reflect China's own domestic political system and political institutions. In other words, it's a very unilateral way of doing things. India has said that if Belt and Road Initiative is to be successful, and particularly if China wants other countries like India to participate in the Belt and Road Initiative, then there has to be a proper dialogue on this. In other words, what you want, what we want, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what's feasible, what's not feasible. And that discussion hasn't taken place. Just a, a note of dissent over here. When United States try to implement particular rules, they don't ask anyone for their opinion. 
And China, now being the second largest power in the world, is probably doing likewise. And we seem to have tech issue with China, but we're not with the United States. I'm concerned about China's expanding influence overseas. But at the same time, we seem to be applying two different standards when we talk about powers behaving like powers. You know, we accept the United States because it's supposed to be benign. But on the other hand, we are not accepting China because we don't know what its intention is. It's not a question of not accepting China. It's really, as I said earlier, it's a difference between rhetoric and reality. If the United States does something, the United States is forced to explain to its own people what it is doing, whether it is after the fact or before the fact. But the United States has to actually explain to the American public, American Congress, media, what it is trying to do. And if an American government does anything illegal, then it is also subject to scrutiny by America's legal institution. China doesn't have any of those safeguards. And that's why we have reason to be more concerned about mistakes that China might likely be to made or consequences of an initiative of the scale of the Belt and Road Initiative, because this will have far-reaching consequences. So I'm not saying that China's intentions are bad, but because the way China is implementing it is so opaque that it's very difficult to tell what's going to work, what's not going to work, what impact it'll have on other countries and other peoples. Is, is that a nod of agreement, Salkeet? Oh, uh, well, I, I mean, at the end of it, it will be a debate between a democracy and a non-democracy. I mean, democracy talks about transparencies and, and accountability and things, but, you know, non-democracies don't. I think at this point, the reality out there is that China is rising. China is actually flaunting its power and its influence overseas. We need to scrutinize what China is doing, absolutely. But at the same time, we also need to accept that rules are changing. Rules are changing. And those rules that we hold on dearly to has been one that was set up after World War II by the United States, almost unilaterally. Not the US alone, no. Because they would not have been put in place if other countries did not agree to those rules. The European Union, for example, countries like Australia and Japan accepted those rules. It's wrong to say that these countries had no say at all. But at the same time, you're looking at a time when Soviet Union say something and United States and his allies didn't really agree. But in essence, the debate that we're having now, which sort of moves away from BRI, but illustrates the point that is it not the case that ultimately, and who's to say how long it will be until we can judge, but the success or otherwise of BRI will be in its acceptance by other nations. So while there is a domestic political success, do you agree it will also be? I totally, totally agree, because ultimately it's going to come down to whether or not people understand what the Belt and Road Initiative is about, what China is trying to do in other countries, in other parts of the world, what that is about, who benefits from it, who loses from it, and at the same time, what the rules of the road are. At the moment, it's not clear what the rules of the road are. So if China is dissatisfied with the existing international order, and China hasn't clearly actually said, we don't like this international order, because after China began its open-door policy, China joined practically every other international institution, whether or not it was created by the United States, China happily joined those institutions. But the question is now, if we are going to change those institutions, if we are going to change those rules, what is the process? Is it something that's going to be imposed by somebody or we need to have a discussion within those institutions, how we modify them? United Nations, for example, India, for example, would like to see United Nations Security Council change, but China is opposed to it. So China is very selective in terms of what it wants change, what it doesn't want to change. I actually agree with you absolutely. It's just that 
I tend to have a more skeptical view towards power. They are always selective in what they want to change. United States invaded Iraq without the auspicious of the United Nations Security Council. It can do what it wants to do. Yes, afterwards it was held to account. And likewise, we will agree that China would be held liable if the BRI didn't proceed in the way that it would be. So the one thing that you have illustrated very clearly, or two things in fact, is first of all, it is way too early to judge success or otherwise of BRI. But uh, secondly, it is so much bigger than ports and roads and power plants and dams. Indeed, it's much more ambitious. It is much more than simply building infrastructure. As I said, it's about the next hundred years, if not longer. Yes, I agree with Pradeep on that. We have to wait and see. But just one footnote to that is that I truly believe there has to be a great deal more accountability and transparency in the BRI. But at the same time, I look at it from the perspective of two great powers coming together, trying to pit their different rules of the game against each other. But it's not just about two great powers now. Remember that we are now in a multipolar world, a multipolar world where it's not only about China and the United States. There are a number of other powers which disagree with both or disagree with one or the other, but they have their own significant interests. The European Union should not be underestimated. Japan and India should not be underestimated. It's not just between China and the United States. But the BRI dialogue has been very much between the United States and India. No, in fact, there's been a much more dialogue between China and India on BRI, for example. (laughs) I think we're going to have to do another podcast on this topic. There is so much to talk about, but I'm going to finish it here. And thank you so much, Sarkeet and Pradeep, for your amazing views and insights. And we look forward to hearing more. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Institute China and Southeast Asia Watcher, Dr. Salki Tok, and uh, by China and South Asia Specialist, Dr. Pradeep Tunisia. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app. Stitcher or SoundCloud and it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud and of course let your friends know about us on social media Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2018 the University of Melbourne I'm Ali Moore, thanks for your company